Thank you guys. You guys are the best. Well, we're super excited because we have one of our dear friends and brother and sister in the Lord and ministry partner. Um, this is Jonathan Nallen. Robin stepped out with Jaden for just a moment, but we'll get to hear from her at the end of this preach. And um, But for those of you who don't know Jonathan and Robin, uh, Jonathan is the founder of the Man uh, Metron Manager Project, which is specifically, you'll, you'll get to hear a little bit about that actually as we go through this, but what he does is he mobilizes uh, people in their in the marketplace to understand and to extend the kingdom through their influence and responsibility and gift set under the unction of the Holy Spirit and under the directive of Christ and his commissioning to us to make disciples of all nations. So pretty fun stuff. And he's actually been launching, it's very cool, I can brag on him a little bit, but he's been launching and consulting with several different um, thought leaders and people that are in the marketplace now that he's able to work with them and actually talk that through. What is the practical approach to extending the kingdom in your sphere of influence, in your place of work and influence? Um, that goes a little bit beyond, which by the way, we loves us some prayer and some Bible studies, but certainly includes that, but continues to go beyond that so that we can see Christ get his full reward in the marketplace. So fun stuff. Uh, or do you feel properly bragged on, Jonathan? Yeah, it's pretty good. He's also really good at, like, <laughs> fishing and uh, arm wrestling. So if any uh, of you guys want to arm wrestle him <laughs> afterwards, I, I don't know if he's a very good fisherman, but I know he won't be arm wrestling because nope. he mucked his shoulders up a little while ago. That's true. I'm going to shut up and let you talk now. But let's <laughs> just reach our story. hands out. I want to pray for this guy, and we're so grateful to have Jonathan here. And after we pray, we'll give him a big Christ Center welcome. Lord, thank you so much for Jonathan and Robin and the ministry, Lord that you've given them, Lord, to extend your kingdom in such practical ways and the way that you have positioned him, Father, with uh, just the incredible influence that they've had with leaders internationally and nationally. And I pray today as he speaks, Lord, that this message would go deep in our hearts and it would be information, but it would also become revelation and cause transformation in our lives and in our places of influence. I pray that it would be a joy for him to share and I pray that with joy we would receive it. And the church said, amen. amen. Now let's greet our dear friend and brother, the Big Christ Center, welcome. All right. You guys, it's great to be back. Ooh, I'm really ringy, ringy. Is that all right? Okay. Yeah, it's great to be back. Uh, this is like an annual pilgrimage for my family. Uh, my folks live here in Eugene, attend church here. And uh, John Miller's my brother-in-law on the drums here, and Naftali's my sister, and her crew, we're all family, so we get to be out here pretty regularly. Uh, yeah, it's a special time. Uh, as Joshua was mentioning, I'm the founder of the Metron Manager Project, and uh, that all stemmed, well, this is all stemmed out of this book the Lord led me to write called Managing Your Metron. I have a table of resources in the back if you're interested after we chat. Uh, stuff's available, suggested donation of $10 for the books. Um, but I also have a couple other topics and titles here. One's called Faith in $5 and Outreach Matters. If you want to hear some wild and crazy, powerful, true life stories uh, and principles of how to advance the kingdom of God, you can check those out. I'll talk to you a little bit more about that at the end. But I started this, uh, this project based on this book, and essentially it revolves around the concept of missionized theology of work and this has been a great exploration and I felt like God I was thinking about it this week I felt like God said you know what um, I've repositioned you to bring a 
message, a framework that's actually going to allow for a future mission movement. And the mission movement will come through the marketplace. I mean, that was even somewhat prophesied by, by Billy Graham in the early 2000s before he passed away. Uh, but the thing is, is that right now, just a little tidbit, as I'm working on this big mission conference in our area, we're from Northwest Arkansas in Fayetteville by the University of Arkansas, and we do a big regional mission conference out there. And I've been asked to carry about half the conference on marketplace mission, the future of marketplace mission, and really the future of missions. Because traditional missions, you guys, is really struggling out there. The traditional model that I grew up doing, I mean, I, I've worked in about 50, 60 countries, done every imaginable kind of mission work you can think of all around the world, and you just can't do that stuff anymore. It's really tight. Post-COVID, everything's changed. We're kind of in a post-COVID reset in a lot of things, but especially in the world of missions and advancing the kingdom of God, and we really need a rethink. And I felt like during COVID, when God had me build out this, this ministry, man, the Metron Manager Project, was really about bringing a new framework. And that's really what I want to share with you guys is this framework for not only the greater ideas of the future of missions, but how do you advance the kingdom of God in your vocation, through your space, through what God's called you to do? Whether that's a paid job that you're called to do or you're raising kids at home, how does this actually work? Because we can't expect there to be a future mission movement from the marketplace if we don't even know how to do it in our own backyard. And so this is what we need to be equipped on and aware of. I think it's what God's doing. So I'm excited to share about this framework with you guys today. And we're going to dive into missionized theology of work. Um, this is always fun. How many, I want to just see hands. How many of you guys have ever read or heard anything on just theology of work? It's always a fun poll because nobody has. It's great. <laughs> and so I feel, I feel like this could be helpful. And no matter where I speak, that's usually the percentage, about three people have <laughs> heard about it. So this will be fun. It'll be new for you. I'm going to get a little bit of the fire hose version on this. And then I'm going to talk to you about the purpose of your vocation, the actual purpose of your work, what you're actually doing here. So Dallas Willard uh, is a great thinker and writer, was, he passed away, but he, he wrote this one statement um, that I love to open with as I present this framework theology here, this framework theology of work. He said, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians whether they will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. And that's really what we're all about and what we're called to do. And when I talk about this term metron, which I'll explain here in a, se in a second, your metron is your corner of human existence. We've all got one. And most of them are a broken mess. Is that true? It's very rare you find a shiny, clean corner in your house much less in any other place in human existence. So what is a metron? Let's start here real quick. 2 Corinthians 10, 13, the apostle Paul uses the word metron when he's describing his sphere of influence. He says, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere, and that word sphere is metron, which God has appointed us. He's talking about what's inside and what's outside of his area of responsibility. So I like to say, though, that Paul uses the term influence, and that's correct. But in our day and age, influence is kind of has a take-it-or-leave-it feel. Because we, when we think of influence, what's usually the first thing we think of? Like influencers on Instagram or something. And that's not really a compelling job description. Like, 
that you, you don't really get that job from God, so to speak. So we got we to gotta think beyond influence to responsibility. That's more what Paul is saying. What he's trying to articulate in his context is there's things and there's people and there's stuff inside the space that God's given me to be responsible for, and there's stuff outside. Because then he goes on to say, I'm not going to build on somebody else's foundation. That's not my zone. He's like, this is my lane. This is my space. And he appeals to this framework. And this is the framework I want to put forward, is that we all have a metron. We have a sphere. I'm going to show you how we get that. And then this book I wrote is all about how do you manage that? What's the A to Z, so to speak, theologically on how you get this metron, how you manage it, and what's the purpose of it? So you're going to get the uh, concise Cliff Notes version here. Um, so my definition of a, met of a metron is a measure of responsibility delegated by God to you in the midst of creation, culture, and spiritual history. So why did I write the book? I usually like to explain this. People ask me, why did you write on this topic? Actually, it was really the Lord. There's a whole other story in that. But I realized after years of work doing marketplace mission work in China and with Chinese uh, university students and different things, upwards of like 90,000 alumni through our programs. It was a huge 12-year project. I realized that most of all the people I was working with were not missionaries that were doing this. They were all marketplace professionals, but none of them felt like they had permission or a co-mission to be doing what they were doing. Like they were somehow out of line, like they needed to quit their day job to go do something spiritual at first, but then they realized, oh no, I can leverage my day job to change a nation. I don't have to you know, my work, my work and identity and calling is not um, sinful. It's actually spiritual. And so all of our people that we worked with were workplace professionals. But I realized that nobody had written to this or taught to this. And what I also began to, uh, to realize, it, like Barna, the research group says, 74% of Christians who work, they can't clearly connect their faith to their work, 74%. And then 84% of Christian millennials have no vision that connects their faith to what they do. Total disconnect. And that's what we're talking about. We've got to recapture this. We've got to retrench here and realize that work is not in the way. It is the way that God designed this all to work. So we're going to talk about theology of work here and try to recover this. Big question. What gives you the right to matter? Do you ever wonder about that? Why do I have a right to even matter in this equation? Do I matter in this equation? Uh, does God hate me? Is that why I have this job? <laughs> like, or what, the, what is going on here? <clears throat> so what gives you the right to matter? We've got to answer this. And as we dive into this framework, I believe that you were made to matter in the kingdom of God. It's not even an option. It's by design. And that things just don't function right if you're not in the equation. And that's how God set it up. To get there, let's start at where we get theology of work. We call it the original commission. Some would call it cultural mandate. Uh, it's essentially the foundation of theology of work and the idea of work as worship. Have you guys ever heard that term, work as worship? That's legitimate. It's not, somebody didn't just make that up. That's actually the word. So let's look at where that comes from. Where do we get theology of work? Genesis 1.28. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then we hop over here to Genesis 2.15, the other part of this commission. 
Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Two big ideas. Cultivate and keep. We're going to look at the first part of this, the word cultivate. That's the key word. That word, abad, means work in the ancient Hebrew, but it also means worship. It's the same word. From day one, when God said, Adam and Eve, work in the garden, it meant worship through your work in the garden. Work as worship. So work, here's the key idea. Work was not a result of the fall. Work was the original design before the fall of how God was going to get things done on the planet. It's all about co-laboring. So this is where we get this idea of work as worship. Adam and Eve were commissioned to cultivate and it was not a form of punishment. It was kind of an outline of mankind's purpose. He, they wake up basically and they get an epic job description. God gives them a scope of work right out, right out, of, the first, right out of the gate. They, they didn't just lay around being lazy, thinking, oh, maybe someday I'll do something. It was like immediately God says, okay, this is why you're here. This is what we're doing. This is how we're gonna do it. We have, Adam and Eve had the original commission. They had a garden, they had delegated authority they had the ability to fulfill their commission to rule over creation. And what God gave them, we also have. We have the same original commission that hasn't changed. It's actually what was recovered at the cross, our ability to fulfill this, to do this, to reverse the effects of the fall. And vocation is, is crucial. It's crucial to God's design. And we're called to fulfill a high calling in this. Adam and Eve had a garden, but we have a metron. There's direct parallel to this, and I think this is why it resonated so well in ancient culture, because ancient, well, a lot of Near East ancient cultures had a concept of garden and uh, temples and these same motifs, but really the Jews understood that the garden was, a, was a, the temples were a model of the garden, and then as you continue on, you see that we are now the new covenant temple. There was this continuity of models continuity of motif in scripture and we get all the way to now we have a metron where Adam had a garden but all the same commission applies so what was Adam's original commission his commission was to take the responsibility to see the world outside of the garden become like the world inside the garden when Jesus prayed or asked us to pray your the Lord's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is hearkening back to the original commission because in the garden, it was being done in the garden as it was in heaven. And Jesus is saying, let's do that again. Pray for that again. That's the restoration of all things. So Adam was to cultivate and keep what was outside of the garden and bring it into alignment with the way things operated inside the garden. The garden was a benchmark model. It was a living model example of what the rest of the world was supposed to look like. And the rest of the world, as we go on here in scripture, you'll see, was not yet cultivated or kept. It was not yet subdued. That's why God told Adam and Eve to go do it. Genesis 2.5, this is the secret of the original design of how God set things up. It says, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not yet sent the rain upon the earth, because there was no man to cultivate the ground. This is a curious statement. So outside the garden, the potential was in the earth. It was in the ground, but God had not sent 
the rain to activate it. Because there was no man to carry out the commission yet, there was no one there to cultivate it and keep it and subdue it. Because our God, you guys, our God is a God of order and a God of peace. What happens to your garden if you just throw a bunch of seeds out there and then come back in three months? That is not a, you are not cultivating and keeping it. You are going to get chaos and disorder. And that's what God's saying here. Your job, mankind, order and peace, cultivation, keeping, subduing, and reproducing in the earth what was inside the model of how things were in the garden. And so this is a big job. This is not a small ask that God says. He's not saying mow the lawns in the garden between like having fruit cocktails. He's saying get out there, work with me to bring this planet into alignment with this earth model of perfect relation between heaven and earth, on earth as it is in heaven, bring the rest of the planet into that. That's a big job. That's probably why they lived forever at that point because it's going to take you a while. And God at the time was like, hey, you're not going anywhere. Let's get to work. <laughs> so that all changed, unfortunately, at the fall. So creation was designed to require mankind. It was designed to require mankind. You, it's creation is designed to require you to co-labor with God. So mankind would work, God would send the rain, and the earth would bloom. A lot of times where we fall off the wagon with this in how we understand our life, the frameworks that we live from, is we want to see God send the rain and then the earth bloom, but we don't want to do any work. So we don't come to the party, so to speak. We don't walk into the commission, the standing job description that mankind has to come to the equation and God's saying, hey, I'm not going to let this go to waste. I'm not going to let all this potential grow up and get commandeered by the enemy and grow in chaos, in disorder. Come to this equation, come to this partnership, work with me, co-labor with me, and then you'll see the fruit. Then you'll see the bloom. So I like to exhort folks that if you're not seeing life in your sphere that God's given you, really, really look at where you're at in that equation. Say, am I bringing what I'm called to bring to the table in this? Am I taking responsibility for this space? It's probably not God's problem. Just like with Adam, he's saying, I'm not letting the rain, so to speak, the life, the what brings life, not letting that come on this so that we don't just let it go wild. He wants us to work with him. So creation was designed to require you. Creation is waiting for you to take responsibility. But here's the implication. Oh, we're switching mics. Awesome. I got double mic power now. Okay. It's always fun. Okay, so here's the implication. We have to... We... Ooh, that's better. My Darth Vader voice. Okay. So we have to work for creation to work. This is something to really think about because a lot of times we just sit back and look at everything, you know, going to hell in a handbasket. We're like, well, that sucks. But that's not how God designed it. He said, come to the equation. Work with me in this, how I designed this, to co-labor with you. So we have to work for creation to work. That's the original design. We do it. Adam, Adam and Eve had the garden and the scope of the earth to work on. That was their original commission. For us, it's our metron. It's what God's given us. For some of us, it can be extremely small. Our metron can literally be us and the interior of our car that needs to be subdued and kept and cultivated. And 
<laughs> remember, to whom much is given, much is required. You, you know, everything starts small in your life. This is why you guys who are young people in this room, this is crucial for you at an early age because God doesn't give you more than you can cultivate and keep. He doesn't bring a lot into your life that's just gonna go to waste and go to chaos and disorder. He says, okay, let's start with your relationship with your parents, your siblings, your church, your work, your schoolmates, your teachers. Let's escalate this. And as you learn to cultivate and keep that space, I will bless you with more. Your scope, your scope of work will increase. But it usually starts, with, I always told my staff when I was in YWAM, because I had so many staff that were like young people right out of high school. I didn't have time to like babysit all of them and patrol them. So I would literally, this is how I would determine how they were doing in their character, their stewardship and, and their roles as ministry leaders. I would say, okay, everybody just line your cars up. And I would just go and look through the window of all their cars. And I'd be like, okay, you nine, you're good. I know that whatever your ministry is going to look like the condition of your car. So you're fine. These three, we need to talk. <laughs> so I could, call, I could call it down to who needed to have a talk based on what I look inside the window of the car. It was almost 100%, you guys. <laughs> and so this principle works across a lot of things. But God wants you to be faithful with the little so he can give you much. And that's how you manage your Metron. You start small, you start faithful, and you follow through. And that's literally, you want to get favor with God and man, that's how you do it. So this, let's talk about co-laboring. Fruitfulness and potential of God's creation, they're designed to be awakened when mankind works together with God. The fruitfulness and the potential, it's there, but it's designed to require you. God left a lot of work that wasn't done. He didn't finish the deal. He could have created a pre-formatted earth. You think of that? All that stuff could have been already let bloom and Adam could have been off the hook for cultivating and keeping, but he left the, it in like a ready state to be cultivated. There's a lot of things he didn't do that he left that required you and me. Let's look at how this works. Because creation rises into its potential when you show up. So number one, multiply. God could have created the earth with seven billion people just like that and said, okay, we're good. But he didn't. He, he left two people in charge of populating the planet. Uh, that's a lot of responsibility. Good thing they did live forever at that point because that's a lot of work. I have one five-year-old. You probably saw him running around. Um, so Adam and Eve are immediately responsible for reproducing and filling the earth. God didn't finish that job. He told them, okay, I set it up. It's going. Let's work together on it. I'll bless your family. Let's have children. <laughs> so that was part of the first thing. Then the second one, subdue. That part of the scripture in Genesis 1.28, if everything was already in order and under exact, it was exactly aligned how it was supposed to be in God's heart and mind, then Adam wouldn't have been con uh, commissioned to subdue anything. Subdue is like an action word. It's almost a military type word of conquest. So there was a lot God left unsubdued so he could do it with us together because then we learned to work with our dad. That's what he's after, is this father-son, father-daughter working relationship. He's not a boss, though he is the boss. You know, you're not a slave. You're a son or daughter working with your dad to manage your metro. Whatever space God has given you, you do that together and you co-labor. 
And that's where things get really interesting because you can get things done that the world could never figure out because you're working with your dad on stuff that he built. Naming, this third one. Do you ever see this? So it says here in Genesis 2.19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. There was probably a lot of eye rolling on God's part, but he just let it go. <laughs> He's like, all right, we're just going to let you name this stuff. We're going to go with it because we're working together on this. And that's God's heart is that probably he could do it better, but he chooses not to. He chooses to make room for you to matter. And whatever you call that thing, that's its name. We still, you know, part of naming, the thing that's cool in naming is you're bringing identity. God, when he gives this delegated authority to carry out this commission to Adam and Eve, he's giving them authorization to give identity to creation. He's like, yeah, I built it, but what are you going to call it? And that's, that's high trust. So he starts with a very high trust relationship with us. And there's a lot of things you still get to name. You create things. You invent things. You have kids that need names. You have dogs that need names. Uh, the naming goes on since the beginning. This aspect of the original commission, you're constantly giving identity to creation. That's why you got to be really careful with your words. What you speak, what you say about people, about family members, about governments, you have power in your words to proclaim an identity on those people for blessing or cursing. So you're, God made room for you to matter, and you can misuse those words as well. You can misuse that naming, that privilege of naming, that authority to name. So I always say none of us get out of here without naming some animals. That's really how it works. You don't really have a choice about it because it's part of your design. Something in your life you are going to impart identity to, either as a blessing or a curse. So you got to be really careful with your words. So what's the purpose of vocation? Let's shift gears here a little bit. That's like the 101 on theology of work and co-laboring. Now you find yourself in your job. You find yourself as a parent. You find yourself in government, whatever it is. What, what's the purpose of my vocation? Okay, Daryl Miller has a good statement on this. He says, work is a call of God upon an individual's life. It becomes the sphere through which, not merely within, so through this work, through which a Christian serves Christ and his kingdom. It is the occupation, the principal business of one's life through which one occupies territory or a sphere of influence. Daryl Miller calls it sphere of influence. I'd call it a metron for Jesus Christ. So your business, your occupation, your work is how you occupy territory in your sphere for Jesus Christ. Vocation, you guys, is occupation. Vocation is occupation. God doesn't want you to just have a job to make money. Though that's fine. He doesn't want you to just have kids so you can have a family. Though that's great. There's upsides. Let's look at Luke 19, 13. It says in the parable that the master called his ten servants and he delivered to them each ten pounds or minas. And he said to them, occupy till I come or occupy till I return. 
the idea of occupation, that your vocation is occupation, you find yourself right in the middle of this parable. You're okay, I've been given something to steward, something to show return on his investment, and I'm holding this ground in my industry. I'm holding the ground, the space, this metron, until he returns and I can show some profit for what he left me to work with, that I can co-labor with him on his creation, show some improvement. So the servants were commanded to use the resources that the master entrusted to help hold the ground of the kingdom. And this is an important concept here. What are you doing when you're holding the ground? You're not just like camping out, having fun, you know, just working on your microbrews, which is fine. Microbrews are fine. I love microbrews. But what you're doing is you're denying the enemy operational space in that industry, in that family. You're holding that space and you're saying, not in this zone. You're saying, I know what God wants in this. I know what he's looking for, return on investment. He's given me this, this area of responsibility. I'm to occupy this. And that means enemy, this is a no-go zone. Stay out of this fence. And enough Christians do that, and that's how you transform society. There's just no more operational space for the enemy. And he moves on. He's like, well, that place is not fun. <laughs> so he's, it's very well guarded. It's very well occupied. So that's the purpose of your vocation. You could be mowing lawns or you could be the president of a country. The same command applies. Hold that ground for the king until he returns. Doesn't matter. Honestly, that's really, we talk about, we talk about what this like next phase I think looks like after COVID and all this. This is really what it is, you guys. We have got to have the body of Christ understand and know how to operate to deny the enemy operational space in every zone. Because otherwise you just get rumbled. You get run over, your garden is a weeded, weed filled mess. And God's like, hey, remember that thing about chaos? <laughs> you know, no, no disorder and chaos? Let's get back to that. So your vocation is the means, the very means that God uses to hold the territory of the kingdom. I wrote this segment in my book, Managing Your Metron. I'll just read it. It's a couple paragraphs, give you an idea about what this looks like. Through co-laboring with God, you're given the privilege of seeing order and blessing cultivated into creation. You may be building, designing, or establishing something that did not exist before. Through connecting with the wisdom of God, you may be putting forward thought leadership and solutions in government. Your connection to the original artist may produce through you beauty, meaning, and also remind people of the beauty of God. Someone's work in scientific and medical fields might bring hope and solutions to the broken areas of your metron. Decisions you make as a leader can be infused with wisdom and knowledge from the courts of heaven. Your calling as a parent or a spouse can bring the living water of unconditional love, acceptance, and trust into your family. You are commissioned to cultivate what I call in my book the source code of heaven into the chaos of creation. You carry the authority and the mandate to displace chaos, oppression, and darkness in your metron. No work of darkness is safe from the believer who knows their authority and acts on their commission in the kingdom. 
That's really what your vocation, the purpose of your vocation, that's what we're after. It's not just holding down a job at McDonald's. That's your space. And God's saying, hey, are you gonna be faithful with the little? I wanna give you much. I started in the dish room at a restaurant at 14 years old. Worked restaurants for six years, did everything. And I have some stories. If you ever wanna hear them, you can listen to my podcast. I got a lot of testimonies from that. Um, so how does this work? That's usually the next question. Okay, I get this, you might say. Okay, but how does this work? It's all about spiritual authority. This is important. So I'm gonna give you a quick top, uh, topic talk here on spiritual authority, how this applies. I'll tell you a story about a friend of mine too. So authority gives you the authorization to use someone else's power. That's what authority does. You're, use, you're authorized to use God's power. You are authorized to use power not over people, not to coerce, because you rule spiritually, but you're called to serve naturally. This is a big, a big important definer and kingdom distinctive about how authority works in the kingdom. You rule in the spiritual, but in the natural, you're the servant of all. You don't, you don't ever, authority given by God to you is not for lording it over anybody. I'm gonna mention more on that. So a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Rob Reamer, he wrote a book called Spiritual Authority, highly recommend it. Um, on page 56, he says this about it. He says, kingdom exploits are always done in Jesus' name as Jesus ambassadors, as sons and daughters of the king. Authority is the right to use someone else's power. He continues, the classic illustration is a police officer. When you see a police officer standing in the road with her hand up, you stop. It isn't that she has more power than you as you drive along in your SUV. You have far more power. She is standing there unprotected, but she has authority. That officer has a relationship with the government. You have a relationship with a certain government. She carries the badge and her name and the name of the government have been united. Sound familiar? When you become a believer, you're united with Christ. That officer acts and speaks on behalf of that government. So when she holds up her hand, you stop. That is authority. And in the spiritual, when you exercise spiritual authority, this is who you are over your metron, your space, what God's given you delegated authority over. You're functioning just like that. You're saying you're in charge of what goes in and what goes out. You say, no, not in my backyard not in my space, or yes, I welcome this in, and we're gonna cultivate and grow this. You're in charge, your hand is up, your name is united with the government of heaven, and that's part of your commission. This is how this operates. Okay, so in the kingdom of God, the means to the end matter as much as the ends themselves. This is really important, you guys. The means to the end matter as much as the ends themselves. The methodology matters. Remember, you rule spiritually, but you serve in the natural. This is what we taught the elite future young leaders of China for 10 years, these tens of thousands, is basically this concept of serving. How do you, they wanted to change their nation. They wanted a new leadership culture. We said, okay, here's how it works. Servant leadership. You want to you change China and you want to do it? Okay, we'll teach you servant leadership. They didn't have a problem with that. That's what they wanted. So servant leadership is your 101 response to how you manage your Metron, how you apply this. 
and it's defined by Dr. Tony Barron. He says, servant leadership is intentional action that seeks the best for others. Intentional action that seeks the best for others. A couple of points on it. Persuasion is the key element to servant leadership. This is Christ-like leadership. He was the ultimate persuader. So was Paul. The kingdom operates on influence, not imposition. So if you ever feel like imposing, check yourself, because that's not God's DNA. Being an imposition or coercing something. Jesus is not coercive. He's not coercive with us, and neither are his disciples or his leaders. So you gotta, be, you gotta work on this framework. I've developed like a master class on servant leadership, faith-based servant leadership and managing your influence. I'll tell you more about that later, but this is key 101. So you're being the spiritual gatekeeper. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4.20, it says, for the kingdom of God is not a, not a matter of talk, but of power. So it's not a matter of words, but of power. So if we aren't demonstrating power somehow in our equations, in our metron, we probably shouldn't be using words anyway. This is one of the things I run into a lot as I'm coaching and mentoring and training uh, workplace professionals who really want to know how to advance the kingdom of God in their space, but they're like, it's illegal to even talk about it. What do I do? And well, that's okay. The Bible says it's not about words anyway. So let's talk about how we demonstrate power. And then just like in China, it was the same rules. It was illegal to talk about it, but we could demonstrate. And when they ask you about it, it's not illegal anymore. And so even in China, that's how we saw thousands of these students come to the Lord. They asked into the kingdom without even knowing we were Christians because of the way we were able to demonstrate. So how does that work out in your lived reality? How do you actually move the kingdom needle in your metron, in your space? Can me give you an example, a story? A friend of mine named Mark, he's in... Uh, Christian guy, great guy in banking, uh, very innovative, working in a Christian bank, a uh, Christian-owned bank, but his department of the people he was working with, it was him and four, I think it was four other uh, homosexual ladies who were extremely militant anti-Christian. And he didn't, even, he didn't even tell them he was a Christian, but they kind of figured it out because three of them were backslidden Christians and were super hostile to him and just tormenting him every day at work. He was just miserable, so we would talk about this. Finally, he just asked God, he's like, God, what do I do? How do I demonstrate? Because they're not words are not going to work here. And he's like, he wasn't even trying to preach to them. He's just trying to do his job. <laughs> he's like, this is miserable. And uh, God told him, tell the, the lead lady who's the hardest on you that whatever she wants, you'll pray for it, and I'll give it to her. Okay, <laughs> like, yeah, can't get any worse than it already is. So he, he calls her and tells her that. <clears throat> and she was like, kind of, he thought she would just blow him off on this thing and not take him seriously. But she was like, all right, let's test that. So she said, I, she's like, I need, a, I need a, a deal to close on my house by like 6 a.m. in the morning or I, her and her partner were gonna lose their house to foreclosure. They needed to sell it that night. And she's like, I don't even have any offers. And so <laughs> he was like, Okay, that's a good one. Let's try that. So he prayed in the truck on the way home, like six in the morning. I think she called him or texted him or called him and was like, I have two offers that are ready to close by six in the morning. And he, she, he said, after that, talk about an atmosphere change in the office. 
<laughs> Nobody had a problem. And he was like, well, this is nice, <laughs> you know? And so words don't always work. Demonstration of the power of God always works. And so don't worry about the words. Learn how to de demonstrate, how to utilize spiritual authority and deal with things in the heavenly places. So he, he's gone on to just be an icon example of uh, change in his workplace um, and just influencing his workplace. It's incredible. So you're the gatekeeper. You're the gatekeeper, gatekeeper over the people, places, and spaces God has given you to manage. That's a high calling. Just like Adam and Eve were the gatekeeper of the Garden of Eden, and they had a mandate for what was outside, that's a missional component, which we don't have time to talk about today. But there's an absolutely embedded missional component to being called to work. Because just like Adam had a planet to cultivate and keep, you have a lot of stuff outside of your metron that God's calling you to expand, to cultivate and keep, and bring into alignment with the kingdom of God. So you're called to govern the atmosphere spiritually and serve naturally. Okay, a couple of things I'll wrap up with here. I want to give you some metrics here, those of you that like to measure and see how you're doing. Uh, here's, some, here's some just bullet points on how you can tell if you're operating. I call it being a kingdom operator. How do you know if you're moving the needle of the kingdom of God in your space, in your metron? Okay, here we go. Take notes if you want. Otherwise, email me. I'll send this to you. People experience peace when they walk in your office. The atmosphere is different. It has to be, or you should not be talking about it. Associates want to work in your department or under or with you, regardless of whatever job it is. They just want to work in your office space. They know something's different. You're given illogical levels of trust that are extended to you by people. People pour out their heart for no reason to you. They trust you with their secrets. They ask advice. I had a manager when I was a busboy who used to always ask me who he should hire at Chili's because he was like, you're like 10 for 10, I'm 0 for 10. He's like, but I was operating the power and wisdom of God. And he would just have me look at him and be like, do I hire that one or that one or that one? And I would just tell him from across the room, just with discernment, exercise the power of God in your space. And he'd be like, all right, let's hire that one. So, I mean, it was weird. But that's how God wants you to operate when you're even at the lowest level in a company. So you're getting ideas and solutions that can only come from God. That's another one. You have favor with God and people, just like Joseph, Daniel, Jesus. It says they grew in wisdom and favor and stature with God and man. You do what needs done, the things that no one wants to do without being asked. This is the big one. This is how you attract favor in your life. You want to know how favor works? This is the key. You do what needs done without what no one wants to do without anybody asking you to do it. A lot of times, God won't even ask you to do it. He just wants to wait and see what you're going to do. So if you're like, I'll do that because I know God would want that done. I know that's out of alignment with the kingdom of heaven. That floor needs fixed. I'm on it. That, God goes, okay, I can trust this guy. I don't have to boss him around or treat him like a five-year-old. And then you start to be given more. So you automatically respond in the opposite spirit when someone comes at you. That's a big test, self-test. How do I respond when someone comes at me in hostility? What's my response? Next one, your responsible space, whatever space you're responsible for is ordered and not left in chaos. Because what the world inside you will become the world around you. That's how the Metron concept works. 
You're known for doing the right things even when it costs you, not just when it's convenient. People feel protected when they're around you. Your instinct is to bless and not blast. You use persuasion instead of coercion. And people want to become what you are. And this, largely all these are based on my own personal experiences and friends of mine. And this is real stuff. And if you want to, you want to manage your Metron, you work on some of this stuff. And this is how it gets actionable in influence. When you talk about, okay, in the kingdom of God, you're only authorized to influence and persuade. You're not authorized to misuse God's power for other reasons. So if those are your tools, you need to learn how to influence. And this is how you influence. So the way I've uh, built this out for folks beyond the coaching and mentoring I'm doing and, and trainings is I built a whole program called the Ways of Work that is all about how do you connect theology of work to what you're actually doing in the, in the marketplace, in the workplace, or in your family. And so if you want to uh, check this out, I have cards in the back. You can look it up online for details. But these will, I'm actually going to be filming the e-courses for this in the next couple weeks here at Christ Center. So this will be fun. Doing uh, e-course versions, live trainings, all kinds of different models. Because what I realized is I need to, we need, me, the church, whomever, needs to equip you to do this. If we're saying lead with influence, you need to be equipped to do that. And so that's what all this is about. And this is very practical. Servant leadership, resilience, and spiritual adversity quotient. We're talking about cultural intelligence training from the kingdom point of view. Uh, I have like seven, six or seven modules of training. And then I have workshops, uh, values. How do you develop um, an or like your, your organization, whatever it is, to move even beyond values to virtue. And all these true things in the kingdom of God that will enable you to actually do this, to leverage spiritual authority, but then how do you see change happen in the natural? Because, as I put on the front of this, in the kingdom of God, the method, the means matter as much as the ends. And you can't go after the kingdom and destroy people in the process. Don't play on the devil's playing field. You gotta really be aware of how you're playing the game. Because in God's, in God's equation, the means matter more than the ends, honestly. You can get the ends done through getting rocks turned into bread if he wants to, but the means and the process is what he's looking at in your life. So there's a lot of resources available. Um, my book, Managing Your Metron, if you haven't picked up a copy of this, uh, these are available in the back. I really want to equip you guys with this framework because I really think it's the way forward, honestly, post-COVID. So that's basically what I got to say this morning. Hope this is helpful.